Welcome to The Fighting Life, a podcast where we explore the lives and times of the boxers we love. My name's Chris Ryan, and I'm with my co-host James Cooney, and we're going to kick off the series by talking about a titan of the sport, the great John L. Sullivan. James, if I can throw it over to you, tell me, uh, why should we? Why do we love John L.? John L. is the first boxing superstar. He's a cultural icon of his day. He's the last of the bare-knuckle champions, and he's the first of the new era of heavyweight champions. And for a while there, he's also one of the most popular people in the world. Take me back to Boston when he was fighting. What era are we talking? This is back in the 1880s, I guess, when he first starts. So born in 1858, yeah, Irish-American, yeah, grew up in Boston, and yeah, just he was a he was known as this, a really strong kid. Ever since he was a baby, there's all these stories that uh, you know he got before he was one year old. He gave his auntie a black eye, and um, yeah, he's, we don't condone that. that is not a good <laughs> thing. But yeah, okay, so he went belting people early. Yeah, he, he was he was a kid that his parents they couldn't even carry. He was um, bigger and stronger than other kids, and very athletic, and wanted to be a baseballer. At the time. I understand his parents didn't have that plan for him. They wanted him to go to the priesthood. Mm academic kid like good at school um yeah they wanted him to go on the priesthood but no he wanted to be a baseballer so he left school you know, in high school and um and became a pro bait that's how good he was he became a pro baseballer and when did he decide to start throwing hooks instead of pitches you know <laughs> he uh he he was just it was sort of like it called him he was just so good at, at fighting whenever there was anything to do with fighting he was just he eclipsed everyone if there was like a travelling show that would come through town, and there was say a, a you know some sort of fighting thing they could do, he'd always just beat everyone up. And he, he started to get this reputation around town. He was nicknamed early uh, as the Highland Strong Boy or the Boston Strong Boy, which was his name later on. I, re- I read also that he like it seemed like he'd get into a fight pretty easily. Mm. I read he did a few apprenticeships, like he was a tinsmith and he worked as a mason. And often, often his apprenticeship ended with a disagreement that saw him <laughs> punching someone. Yeah. Oh, yeah, settling things with his fists. So yeah. he was handy with the knuckle pretty early on. When did he start to get attention on a wider scale, like a national scale? I guess he just. He, I guess he was. Um, he, he was just unstoppable. He'd have little fights up in Boston. And he just started, this reputation just started growing. And um, the press started reporting on him. And he's, you know, he, he was very f- sort of fan-friendly style. That was his his sort of game. He was really aggressive fighter, really tough, 5'10", uh, 5'10 five, 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 and a half, kind of tall for the time, broad-shouldered, um, knockout power in both hands. And he was just, I, I'd like to think of him as the ultimate bar brawler. He never took a backward step when he fought. And fights were over quickly. So people loved to watch him fight. Um, and yeah, just created this huge reputation for himself. And p- people all over America started hearing about him. What was the fight game in like in those days? So it was mostly, a, at this time, it was mostly a bare-knuckled affair. So before the Queensbury rules that we have today, uh, it was the London Prize ring rules. And um, it just, I mean, it's a some people think it's a dirty sport today. It was a really dirty sport back then, and uh, it was illegal across most of America. And yeah, it was it was associated with all sort of criminal vices, and you'd find it in the back of pubs sometimes. You might on a barge in the middle of a river. It was a it was a really sort of yeah criminal sport. 
In terms of the sport, I guess we'll delve into well the bare knuckle game at the yep. time just to to tell people about it. So rounds were unlimited. Yep. But as I think that can give people a wrong impression because they think a fight might have gone forever. Often it was around in when a man went down and then they'd get mm. back up to stretch. So there could be a lot of rounds that were just there were wrestling where you're throwing people to the ground. Yep. There's you know well illegal hits that were seemed to be more permissible then. Yep. People would get away with more. There'd be gouging. There'd be, you know, because you don't have gloves on, eye gouging, hitting head on the head, all that sort of headbutting yep. stuff, dirtier fighting generally. Yep. Um, and and often it was sort of like it was last man standing. So some fights could go for two or three hours and they did. But... I was reading about a fight that Peter Jackson had, an Australian boxer, and it's quite funny as well, but that idea of fights going for hours, it said the crowd wandered off at half time. <laughs> You know, the crowd who were just there to bet, hmm. a lot of them, it's kind of like, oh, they're just wrestling in the mud now, time to leave. So tell me about how our man Sullivan rebelled from that or what he wanted to do instead. So, yeah, he was a huge proponent of the Queensbury rules. So they're the modern rules we have today with, you know, gloves and, and three-minute rounds and all that sort of stuff. And he, he wanted to sort of civilise the sport. You know, not just for himself, he, he wanted not to get arrested when he had a fight, but he, he thought that it'd be nice if the people watching him weren't arrested as well. Um, and he was and he was a big proponent of gloved fighting, and um, he, he tried to endorse that throughout his career. And I think well, you'll see by the end of his career, that's what's going on. It's mostly Queensbury fights. So before he gets his way and makes that the preeminent mode of punching people out, and I, as well, it, very quickly, that was his kind of trademark, proving he could do it within four rounds most of the time. Hmm. How did he have to wrest the title of bare knuckle champion? Yeah, so he sort of gets so that the champion of the day is a guy called Paddy Ryan in America, and he starts calling him out, uh, putting paper, uh, ads in newspapers, sort of saying you should fight me and all this sort of stuff. He, it's it's interesting here. He runs into a guy in New York. It's an important person. Um, Richard Fox and uh, Richard Fox runs a newspaper that we should talk about uh, the Policeman's Gazette and it's very important uh, newspaper of the day very popular with young men and um, it's it reports on fighting it reports on uh, it's very sort of uh, tabloidy I guess you'd say and Fox and him just don't get on from the start two big egos and it's imp- kind of important Don, he's kind of like a Don King character okay and uh, sort of mixed with a Rupert Murdoch kind of uh, thing too. He's a bit of a kingmaker. If he likes you, it's um, in your favour, but they don't get on. So it's you'd think it would be harder for John L to sort of arrange these fights, but because this guy wants John L to lose because he doesn't like him, he's going to try and arrange for guys to beat him. And so eventually he just he's, he's a wrecking ball of a man, John L. He keeps winning his fights. And eventually, Paddy Ryan has to fight him. John L, of course, wants to fight him with Queensbury rules, but he's sort of shamed into shamed into fighting bare knuckle. And I guess that's what the title the title that Paddy Ryan holds. So there's no reason for him to, you know, that's change what he does. He, yep. he he he's he's got the belt. He can claim you know fight yep. in my terms. So this guy is the American champion, Paddy Ryan. He's got a young upstart from Boston. How does the fight unfold? So yeah, this is 1882, um, and this is a huge, a huge fight um, across America. P- thousands of people travel to see this, including Oscar Wilde, um, the outlaw Jesse James was supposed to be there as well, and 
it doesn't, it lasts, they say it lasts 11 minutes. Some people said it lasts 20 minutes. So between that, it didn't last long. Uh, John L from the start was said to be the, the easy, easily the better fighter. And afterwards, Paddy Ryan described being hit by John L as being like hit with a power pole. He said, I'd never, he'd never fought anyone like that before. And a lot of people thought that, that, John L's power wouldn't translate over because he'd been fighting in gloves a bit. They thought the bare knuckle stuff he he would he'd sort of get found out, but he didn't. He proved himself to be every bit what he said he was. So he destroys the reigning heavyweight champ, gets the bare knuckle title himself. Then I think it unravels a bit for him in a way. Yes. What, what happens once he's got that title? So it's sort of a, a huge blessing and a little bit of a curse. He's it's important. I mean, he was all—he was always a drinker. He didn't mind a beer beforehand, but at this point, everyone in America wants to buy him a beer. Everyone—he he, he describes it as an ocean of alcohol comes his way, and he can't avoid it. So he go—he starts going on these benders, um, and and I'm not not a day or two, like weeks at a time. He'd be drunk in local towns and at local saloons, and. Just the stories the press would report on him are amazing. It's funny, he, he seemed like a very happy-go-lucky man in a lot of ways, very likeable in a lot of ways, but he also was, when he was drunk, he was a terror. He would, well, it was violent with with his wife. Yep. He, he, he was um, punched a horse. Punched, knocked out a horse. Allegedly. allegedly. Um, I, mean, I think that's more the stuff of legend, but the, the whole, the violence against the wife was well-documented and yep. they broke up and... and even there's a story of his own son dying young. That yep. That well, you would go into that. Well, I guess yeah. He he, he sort of um, he didn't didn't see his son. Didn't go to his son's grave. It was a whole. He sort of had a bit of a his demons as well. Um, and that's through his whole career. The drinking is pretty much a constant, isn't it? Mm. But he's he's just on the tear. He's drinking everywhere. He's he continues to fight. Anybody and everybody. Tell me a bit about yeah. this. Where do we head up to after? How does he really make his name? So, hilariously, he goes on this thing called the Knocking Out Tour, and um, it really makes it, it, and his name for himself in America. I mean, he was well known before this. He's a he's a superstar already, but this really catapults him. So it's basically a like a coast to coast tour where he says he picks a fight with America. He says. Uh, anyone who can wants to jump in the ring with me for four rounds, if you can beat me, I'll give you two hundred and fifty dollars, which was a lot of money at the time. Um, I've seen like, it's funny as well because you look at the old papers and sometimes it's a thousand, sometimes you know this. The, the details are always shady on this, but he was just punching people out everywhere he could go. Everywhere he sort of went to every nook and cranny around America. He went to all the places where working men were, and every local tough guy got to step in the ring with John L. And the stories that came out of there are pretty funny. You know, the, there was one there was one story where he knocked out someone for fifteen minutes, and uh, he woke up and said, "When do we fight?" And they said, "It's already happened." You know, but it just it it wasn't it was huge for John L, uh, endearing him to the to the people, but also the press loved it. And John L was great with the quote. He was always talking to press, and um, yeah, became a, an absolute superstar after this. And he'd also through those towns the the drinking was also happening, was it? Like, yeah. Where he he wasn't letting, he wasn't in keeping himself fit and trim through these exhibitions. He was going out afterwards drinking, and I, I would assume fighting more in the bars and saloons if he got the chance. Yeah, this is I think it was more than six months of just 
carousing. He's just on tour. He's like a band on tour or something. You know, he's just, he's out there. Now, the next, I guess, during that time, uh, you know, you talked about Fox wanting people to beat him. There's a couple of names that come up. There's yep. the the New Zealander, the, the, the Maori fighter called Slade. Yeah, they, uh, this so this uh, newspaper publisher is still trying to find an opponent to beat Sullivan, and he finds this guy Herbert Slade from New Zealand, and um, and everyone thought he looked yeah huge guy would come in and yeah short work. John L was still in his prime here and going through even as a drunk he was unbeatable, and comes across a few good fighters here. The first one is Charlie Mitchell, and. He'll meet, meet Charlie Mitchell a couple of times. He's an English fighter. He's really a middleweight. He shouldn't be fighting against big guys like John L, but very skillful, and not and actually knocks John L down, which is you know hadn't been done. I don't think it had been done at all. Might have only a couple of times, and and then he'll meet Charlie Mitchell a few more times down the track. It's worth going into his second meeting with Charlie Mitchell, where they're fighting in New York. I guess it's, and this is an interesting thing as well, because even though he's doing these fights, they're four round exhibitions, they're called. Yep. That's always put in inverted commas, because if it's too violent or if it's too clearly someone's getting bashed, police will come and stop the fight. It's even this blood fighting is in a kind of murky legal area. But this is the second fight the in July 1884, where he's fighting uh, Charlie Mitchell for the second time. And this is what, this is a report that comes out in Daily Alta, California. From the New York Correspondent. I have yet to see a more degraded, disgusting, repulsive, or pitiable looking object than was John L. Sullivan, champion of the world, when on Monday evening he leaned over the ropes of a 24 foot ring at Madison Square Garden and attempted to address a multitude of 8,000 peoples. There stood a man endowed by the Almighty with more than his share of human strength reduced below the level of a brute. And then it goes on. This man, John L. Sullivan, than whom no stronger or more scientific boxer exists in the United States was drunk, debased, demented through his craving for liquor. So he just turned up drunk. Exactly. Yeah. Totally drunk, can't handle himself, can't speak to the crowd. It says here a, a teenage boy would have knocked him out. And it makes the point that even though he was there, the crowd loved it. Yeah. They just wanted to see this guy. And I guess that was the power of his celebrity at the time. It didn't even matter if he couldn't lace up a glove. People were clamoring to see him. Just to watch him. He, they, he didn't have to fight at all. But he turns up to this fight drunk, out of his mind. And he, he'd been on a bender for three or four days at this point. And he had a doctor's note. And he, and he said, you know, I'm, I can't fight because I'm sick. And everyone could smell. You could smell him from 30 feet away. But that, that's what well, this is the, the drunk that he was at this period. So... We so I was going to say, then obviously you can't just be boozing and still calling yourself for the heavyweight champion of the world. Obviously, some people are going to start to say, well, do you deserve, do you deserve that title or, or, or is there a greater champion out there? Because this is before a time where there's, you know, there's not proper belts, there's no sanctioning bodies. And so going back to Fox, your man, what happens there? What does he set up in terms of a big fight? So... There's an up and co- young up and up and coming fighter called Jake Kilrain. This is um, the late eighteen eighties, and Fox props him up as the ne- as the next best thing. Basically, calls him makes his own belt from the Policeman's Gazette and calls it the Policeman's Gazette Champion. And he even I've noticed he starts calling Jake Kilrain the World Champion because he, you know, fought an Englishman to a draw. Yes, and uh, and yeah, just sort of attacking John L's manhood, I guess, sort of trying to coax him out. 
coax him out of his boozing for a fight, which eventually works. Uh, and and but John L. when he signs the contract, quite smart of him. He knew he knew he was a shambles at the time. He said, "I'll fight, but in six months. I need six months to get fit." Um, and John L.'s backers, the people that were supporting him, they knew that they needed sort of like a if there was this was a Rocky movie, he needs a montage. And they know just the person to get him into shape. It's a guy called William Muldoon. So how does Muldoon get this boozing wreck of a man back fighting fit? So Muldoon is a very well-known man himself. He's a former wrestler and he's a health nut. He lives on a farm. He's uh, very religious. He He's a clean living guy. And he basically takes Sullivan under his arm and he, Sullivan's forced to sort of move in with him. And um, Sullivan does chores around the farm and eats well, sleeps well, exercises, all this sort of thing. It's great. It's really good for him. But Muldoon's other job is to keep Sullivan out of the pub, basically. Yeah, the full-time job. Yeah, he's like itself, a, really. just like a prison warden. He's um, And occasionally there's stories that, that Sullivan would get out from the property and they'd find him in a pub and they'd ring a bell or whatever and Muldoon would have to come and collect him. So it was this weird, unlikely... Uh, sort of team that that sort of got him fit but um but it worked so take well i was saying take us to now the jake Curran fight it's worth noting that it's still it's illegal at the time they don't they don't even say on the fight poster where the fight's going to be because the police will shut it down mm. but i think the fascinating thing is it's on the it's it's he's that famous now this is front page news this illegal fight that's going to happen somewhere mm. it's kind of bizarre to think about um so, yeah, where, tell me where it is, when it's happening. Yeah, so this was Mississippi. And uh, yeah, John, John, before this, John L was, a, as we said, he's a wreck of a man physically. And, and not just physically, mentally too. He was having deliriums. He was seeing things. He'd see a phantom rat. They used to say there was always this rat that he could see somewhere and didn't exist. Or robbers were always in his house, but they weren't. That's really... not, I've, uh, we've all had bedders like that. It's a, it's a bad space to be in. It means you're yeah. drinking way too much. He certainly was, but no, he he was in good shape after six months with um, Billy Muldoon, and yeah, so the, the fight goes ahead with Kilrain, and it was pretty even. People thought that um, a betting was pretty even. People thought he was past it, he, and if you see photos from him from the time, he, he doesn't look like the man he used to be. The young John L. Sullivan was f- really, really fit man, and. And by this point, he's eating and drinking, and even with the even with the fitness camp, he's not um, not in I think top shape. But yeah. But anyway, um, so the fight, yeah, the fight goes ahead, and it's a real barn burner. It's a seventy-five rounds fight, and it's grueling. It's a grueling affair, and there's a there's a period at about about forty rounds in where um, he vomits. In, he's winning the fight, and everyone just sees he's standing there, and he just starts vomiting everywhere in the ring. Not a good, not a good sign if you bet on him. You start to worry. He was, I think his opponents were happy when this was sort of happening, and and afterwards he'd say that because what they would do at the time was they'd put whiskey in their their tea in the corner, and the, and the and the, the thinking, no powerade then no powerade instead of powerade so th- or prime. Yeah, <laughs> the thinking behind it was that it would dull the pain, and. What John L would say later on was, "My, I was so fit at the time that my body was rejecting the alcohol." But his trainers would say, "No, jo- if it was John L, his body would have been accepting the alcohol and rejecting, rejecting the tea, rejecting the tea." Allow that excuse next time. I'm yeah, no, but my body's just rejecting the alcohol. 
that's I also that in that fight it's worth noting that's the last you know um, title heavyweight title or, or you know, considered the last heavyweight title under the bare knuckle rules yep. the London prize ring rules and some of those I also in terms of roughness they they wear spiked shoes to in the mud and Sullivan talks about having his toes stepped on bleeding through his shoes had been yep. kicked through the fire like it's a messy affair yeah and by the end they're just they look. I think that's why it was stopped in the end was because they said to uh, Kilrain's team, he's going to die. He's going to die if this keeps going. They were a mess. They could hardly keep their hands up in the end. And yeah, John L won the fight. And if you thought he was famous before that, he was even more famous after this. And he kicked on and you know really parlayed his um, his fame into fortune. One thing I love a story about that where where. Fox had put up a belt, you know, the belts that we always see in boxing now, but for the champion of that fight. And Sullivan said, I wouldn't put that belt on my bulldog. <laughs> so that contempt he had for Fox remained the whole time. Yeah, and, and at this point, this is, you know, Fox still hasn't found someone to beat him. This has been you know, eight years or something at this point, and uh, no, one can, no one can beat him. I think we were, this is probably a good time to, well, I, you know, we don't want to, we're here to celebrate him. But as well, that belt now kind of, I think, from my mind, you, you can't go back in time. You don't know what the public thought. But that seems to have cemented his claim, mm. that victory, you know, coast to coast in America, that he was the world champion. There were Australians that thought otherwise. There were English people that had their own champions that couldn't get a fight with Sullivan. Yep. But I think the point I've come around to, okay, Peter Jackson, a, a um, West Indian Australian boxer, um, and then there was Frank Slavin, an Australian, uh, you, 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 I guess, an Irish-Australian boxer. Yep. The, the fact is they wanted to fight him because he had the title. So that sort of gives legitimacy to that title or that claim anyway. You know what I mean? That he was the man that everyone wanted to be. Yeah. And and previous, I think, as well, he did. He fought in France as well. He fought um, Mitchell for the, or the third time. He, he fought in France. If you count that second count. If you count the second one. Um, so yeah, he did go overseas to, for a couple of fights. Um, but yeah, you're right. He sort of, if, if there were any doubts, he's cemented it now. Yeah, for sure. Um, now it's interesting what he does with that fame and fortune. I guess he doesn't bother fighting for quite a while. Instead, he instead he starts acting. He'd already done some, but this is when he's acting tour. That's mainly what he's doing for the next few years. Yes, yeah, as he said before, people just wanted to see him they didn't necessarily want to see him fight they just wanted to i mean that's what the old saying was i shook the hand that shook the hand of john l sullivan people he was so famous and he would just uh, appear in these acting troops um he was apparently was an okay actor oh, i think <laughs> i think i have to dispute that I, I, from what i've from what i've read this he he's most of the well one of the one of the acts he was in was called honest hearts willing hands and the main event was him punching someone out. Yeah. Like, you know, that was that in the script was always an exhibition, which I think must have been the hardest job in show business to be his sparring partner for yeah. Because he would, because because from reports he would drink on stage. He'd turn up drunk. There was one report where he took it says he took twice as many steps to get off stage than was necessary. Mm-hmm. So he's staggering around <laughs> drunk, and he's occasionally bashing people. So yeah, but needless to say, they're happy to see him. He's, yeah, so he's acting here, and also he does other sort of engagements. He'd do like he'd pitch for a baseball team. He'll turn up and pitch for a baseball team for the day, and he and he'll take half the gate. So <laughs> he's just making money everywhere, and still drinking a lot. Still drinking a lot. Now, obviously, I think what how long since there's about a three year gap between yep. fights. So he's he's doing his act. He's pursuing his acting, 
with some punching on the side and drinking as a as a main event. He uh, what was he, he? There's a quote about his problem with drinking. What did he actually say about? He said um, one of one of his great quotes about drinking was his toughest fight was with the bottle. His toughest opponent was the bottle, the black bottle. He called it. Yeah. So he, by eighteen sort of ninety two, he's had two or three years off here, and people are saying, and he's, they can see he's completely out of shape. You need to either retire or fight someone, and. This is the this is the, his last fight. Will be his last fight. His last his last opponent is Jim Corbett, gentleman gentleman Jim Corbett, who he's had a, a spar with before. He has so so Corbett has they've done some sparring and Corbett thinks he's got his measure and he there's a there's an account that he'd written a letter to his friends saying he didn't think John L was all that. I mean he knew he was ferocious and he knew if he could survive the first couple of minutes. He could um, he could beat him. So Corbett, for people listening who know a bit about boxing, he's sort of recognised as the father of of sort of modern boxing, technical boxing. That he was a very scientific boxer, and he was very different to John L. As if John L. was a slugger and a brawler and all that sort of thing, this guy fought every other way. He fought off the back foot. He was a uh, thinking fighter. Yeah, my my sense is. Because they also talk about Sullivan being more scientific than the old days of bare knuckles. So Sullivan might have been more like your sort of Mike Tyson. Corbett was a bit more defensive, was happy yeah. to dance around where, where Sullivan's whole thing, and you talk about the whole, well, part of his problem with the bare knuckle boxing as well, was that people would throw people down or they'd run away or they'd take a knee and take a fall. He just liked people to stand and trade punches. Mm. For him, that's what boxing was and that's what people wanted to see. Exactly. And Corbett was... Corbett was a guy who trained. He was a guy who trained four hours a day every day. He was he was a student of the game, and people say I don't know how true it is, but he invented the left hook. That's that's written about him too. Um, he was someone who used footwork like a like a much smaller man. He he's and he, that's what he practiced. Before this fight, he he knew that he was going to get rushed because that was John L's signature move early in a fight. Was he had this crouch style and he'd rush you. So he's he was practicing his sort of lateral movement. Now Sullivan, obviously, he besides drinking a lot, he hadn't um, and not fighting that much or not training that much. He still had confidence. Hmm. He still believed he was the best man. He thought he'd make short work of Corbett. Hmm. I take it. Yeah, um, he, he really. There was a great quote he had about beating him. Um, but yeah, and. He, for good reason, you know he's been the champ for so long, and it's not just his, his power of personality as well. No one could really stand up with him. Um, I think he said, uh, "All I need to do to get into shape is have a shave." For this, I think that was his quote before the fight. And his prep, we talked about Muldoon taking him to camp. His prep that he was beyond Muldoon now. He, it's almost like he started to believe his own height. Yeah, if you see the photos, he's not in the he's not in tip top shape. He's not as good as he could have been, but he's still fit enough. He's still a good opponent, but um, it's not how it goes down. Yeah, well, it will, we'll, I guess we can talk about it in future podcasts about Corbett, but today we may as well talk about how did it go down. So Corbett, as, as I said, he, he knew that if he could sort of survive the opening sort of few rounds, he'd be okay. And that, and what he did was he didn't engage early on. And John L was heard to be saying, fight me like a man, fight me like a man <laughs> early on. And the crowd wanted him to fight him like a man, I guess, as well. 
the crowd were booing early on because Corbett was not engaging as much as he, he could have. And it was about the third round where Corbett, this is all in his plan, you know. He yeah. thought, I'll, I'll move around, I'll be defensive. And he started sitting down on his punches in the third round and and landing and hurting John L, which had never really, he hadn't seen this before. It is worth mentioning when you think about the shape John L was in. Yeah. The third round is not that late in the five. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't the championship rounds when he started to carve him up. It was by the third round, Sullivan was already slowing. Just flustered. And I think... Um, the longer it went on, it was just torturous. He's just getting pieced up by the younger. He's 10 years younger. Corbett's 10 years younger. A younger, fitter man who's thinking three or four moves ahead of him. And and he hasn't had to had to fight a guy like this before at this size. And I think it goes to 21 rounds. And he, by that point, he's cooked. He's, he's, his lungs are burning. His legs are fried. And he gets caught with a right hook, which is which is basically Sullivan's signature punch. He gets caught with that punch. And Sullivan goes down, and, and that's the end of his title reign, his 10-year title reign. He's lost the title. He doesn't fight again, no comebacks. What happens? How is he received after losing that title? How is he received back in Boston? He's received like a hero. He's, people love John L. He, there's a photo of John L. in every bar in America, basically, especially the Irish bars. There are probably two of them. But... Um, <laughs> He's yeah, he's still a hero, and for years afterwards, he doesn't he doesn't fight again as a like he has a few exhibition fights after this, but yeah. but um, but yeah, he's he's a hero, and he drinks keep, keeps drinking for a while. Um, I understand he he manages to shake it at some time. He sure does. Later on in his life, he he does give up, but eventually he does. We'll get to John L's legacy, but something I just wanted to touch on, I thought was interesting, was it a belt that was made for him in 1887 at the height of his fame. And it was cost $10,000 to produce and the money was raised just by regular people, which I guess speaks to his fame and the esteem he's held in. But um, he had, you know, 250 diamonds spelling out the name, John L. Sullivan, very flash-looking piece. And then in the later years, John L. Sullivan had to prize out diamonds and, you know, sell them to pay off boozing debts and gambling debts. And in the end, he ended up, Taking it, he got pawned several times, and in the end, he ended up losing it. I guess in a sort of the same way we saw, you know, almost a century later in Raging Bull with Jake Lamotta when they've got him taking his belt to the pawn store. Hmm. It just speaks to that, um, you know, I guess the downfall in a way that came with his fame. That yeah, he talks about he spent a very happy go lucky bloke, spent a lot of his money on carousing, just having fun, and um. Yeah, he uh, he died with hardly any money at all. While we're talking about the less savoury aspects of his character, I think we should probably talk about here the fact that he refused to give uh, black boxes a shot at his title. Yeah, so this is something that is a black mark on his career. He yeah, he wouldn't fight black fighters, so uh, it was a, a kind of common occurrence of the time. Uh, there were fighters who didn't do that. Oftentimes, for the title, white boxers didn't want to fight black boxers, and one of the, one of the big black boxers at the time was um, the Black Prince, um, Peter Jackson, and he was a great fighter. We know he was a great fighter because he fought James Corbett, the guy that beat John L, and they had a draw. And that is a, a a black mark that hangs over John L and you know a bunch of people from that era. That's drawing the colour line. What about just his legacy generally? 
Yeah, so I guess if you firstly look at him as a boxer, as a fighter, he's a great fighter. Um, by all accounts, he's a great fighter, especially as a young man. Um, even with lists today, when people put together these you know, greatest finishes or greatest punches, he's high on those lists if they want to go that far back. It's also very important to think about um, what he did for the sport of boxing. So in terms of with the rules, with, with uh, the Queensbury rules coming in and him sort of championing the Queensbury rules, that's what we have today. So that's a huge, a huge thing that he did with that. Also, he's the fir- one of the, the first superstar athletes ever. So it's, that's an important thing. He changed the way that uh, sports were reported, I guess. And also, it can't be sort of overstated how important he was as a cultural figure and as a... There were a lot of poor Irish people in America at this point, um, and he gave them hope, and that's something, you know? I love how you brought that back around. I, I left us with a pretty depressing do- portrait over the end of John Ellis Sullivan's career, but you've reminded us why it was so important to so many people. Thanks so much for bringing us that story, James. It's, um, I hope everyone out there enjoyed it, and we look forward to bringing you more tales of the boxing world next episode. 